Hello to all of our listeners, both in El Paso and across the country. The episode that follows was recorded prior to the tragedy that devastated our community on August 3rd. The strength and solidarity our community has exhibited in the face of such a senseless tragedy shows the true heart of El Paso. In the face of such hatred, we have come together united and strengthened by our love for each other and the city we call home. While we know it is not enough, our thoughts and prayers are with those victims and the families that were directly affected by this act of terror. If you are looking for opportunities to help those affected, please reach out to our office at 915-566-4066. This event has shaken us to our core, but it has not broken us. We have and will continue to rise stronger than before. Somos unidos, somos fuertes. We are united, we are El Paso strong. And now our interview with Andrea Tani, Vice Chancellor for Texas Tech University, Health Sciences Center, El Paso, Office of Institutional Advancement. We have Miss Andrea Tani, the Associate Vice Chancellor for Institutional Advancement, kind of a, a tongue twister there. She's joining us today. So Andrea Tani is the Associate Vice Chancellor for Institutional Advancement at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center here in El Paso, where she is responsible for fundraising operations for the institution. Before joining Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center, El Paso, Tani served as Vice President for University Advancement for New Mexico State University and was President of the New Mexico State University Foundation. Under her leadership, the foundation launched the most ambitious cash campaign in the NMSU system's history with the goal of raising $125 million. Within five years, her team raised more than $100 million in cash and pledges and set record fundraising marks for two consecutive years. In 2016, she was named one of Albuquerque Business's first 40 under 40 for her professional achievements, leadership, contributions to the community, and impact to New Mexico. Thank you for joining us today. I know, so if you aren't familiar with the El Paso area, Andrea actually lives in Las Cruces, so it's a good 45-minute drive without traffic. So with construction, probably a good hour, 15 minutes, right? <laughs> Not too bad. Sometimes I'm um, with traffic. It could be, yeah, 50 minutes to an hour, but usually 40 minutes door to door. And I've lived in the area for 10 years, so I actually can't get this commute right. I lived um, in El Paso and commuted to Las Cruces <laughs> for five years, then moved there. And now I've been commuting for about a year back to El Paso, but I love being back in the business community here in El Paso. So if we had like a commuter train from El Paso to Las Cruces, you would be the first first one with a ticket, right? <laughs> I would, because then I could actually do work when I'm on the freeway and text mm -hmm. and email and not <laughs> um, risk getting in an accident or a ticket. <laughs> so let's start off and just talk about your title for institutional advancement with Texas Tech. It's going to be a weird question, but did you always really want to be in academics? Did you always really see yourself as somebody working for institutional advancement as, at a university? So it's funny, anytime you go to a fundraising conference or you talk to um, fundraising professionals, the joke is always, you know, you don't grow up as a kiddo thinking, oh, I want to be a fundraiser when I grow up. You just, everybody has a different story and a different journey of how you sort of land and have a calling for fundraising. And then a lot of the trend now is if you're doing fundraising in higher ed, you tend to segue into overseeing marketing communications. Mm -hmm. So that's been a really nice experience for me and has helped me build a lot more experience um, and expand my knowledge in marketing and communications for an institution 
solution and really that bridges itself um, into business as well. It's taught me a lot about marketing for even the business community, which has allowed me to help um, some of my um, business um, partners and even my husband's business and being able to help the community in that way as well. So when you first started out, what exactly did you start out in? For somebody who's interested in working in higher education, in more of the administrative side of things, where did you get your start? So I always credit my professional career to my military time. I did active duty uh, four years and four years reserve in the Air Force right out of high school. And I always feel that it gave me a really a strong start in leadership experience um, in a very regimented um, schedule, if you will, which really gives you um, a lot of background in you know how you structure your day, how you prioritize, how you lead a team. And so I really credit uh, the military for that. And also with my, for my education, I was able to use the GI Bill and earn my PhD. Um, but I, as soon as I got out of the military, I actually I was stationed in Tucson and had the opportunity. I started off as an administrative assistant uh, at University of Arizona mm-hmm. and slowly just worked my way into different roles. And that's probably one of the things I always recommend is just always take a chance. And if you have an opportunity to keep growing in any of your roles, um, even if it's it's, you know, just one step up, the next step, um, take it mm-hmm. and sort of seize the day. And um, that's what I did. I uh, and eventually became a program coordinator at, at the Arizona Cancer Center and started doing some grant writing for um, a faculty member and a director of the Cancer Center there and fell in love with grant writing. That was my first really introduction into fundraising and writing for nonprofit organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really saw the impact with because it was a grant for breast cancer, um, a study for women with breast cancer and specifically Hispanic women um, in Tucson and the border city. And that really, um, I got to see the impact and that's when I fell in love with it because I knew that those dollars that I raised, whether it was fundraising or writing grants, had an immediate impact in our community. Right. So I think it's super interesting that, first off, thank you for your service. I didn't know that you were a service member, so finding out more about you. But thank you for your service. Um, And to to be Air Force, I mean, that's got to be quite an experience. I don't think that there's a lot of women in the Air Force in armed services in the first place. So thank you for your service again. Um, But I think it's interesting that you talked about grants because I think sometimes when people think fundraising, they think it's all just going to big companies and being like, hi, can I have some money? Hi, can I have some money? I know that grant writing can be a very taxing process and it's something that you really have to learn. So can you talk a little bit about some of those challenges when you first started to get into grant writing? I think some of the challenges really, it all, and I even see it today in a lot of nonprofit professionals and colleagues who write, really having a strong writing background is, and refining those skills is the best thing you can do as a grant writer and and even when you're asking for money because I always tell you know I've over I've managed led development officers um, for a number of years and I still do and one of the things I tell them is put some things on paper so that you can kind of get um, you can gather your thoughts and really create build your case for it so it's not just about walking in and saying you know hey can you give to this important cause and here's you know here's mm-hmm. why you think you should give it really is building your case on on paper and if you can do that on paper and communicate effectively in writing i think that translates into being able to make a strong verbal ask when you go in and ask um so 
I think that skill set of writing and being able to communicate your case on paper is probably even strong, is more important than going in and walking in and be able to verbally ask for money. Beyond really having some strong writing skills and, and really having to build that up because I think with writing, when you are in a college class, you learn how to write research papers and you learn a very specific style of writing. And so when you have to go into writing grants or writing position papers or, or anything else, you really have to retrain yourself how to write, which can be a challenge. But are, were there any other challenges when you first started out that really stick out in your mind? I would say knowing the audience. Oftentimes, especially in higher education and I think nonprofits, a lot of times you're used to writing for maybe um, government grants. Mm -hmm. And that's a really big pot of funding that a lot of people are used to writing for. And it's an easier task almost because it's more technical writing. So you're not having to sell your case as much. It really is more about sort of this technical writing of filling in the boxes of the questions you're being asked where I would say private grant writing for foundations and corporations mm -hmm. and even individuals, um, it really is building that case and knowing the audience. And so knowing who's going to be at the other end of reading that is really key. Um, what And so, you know, writing blindly to, sometimes you have to write blindly to, you know, these national big organization, right. RFP type of things. But when you're trying to write, um, you know, for, for organizations that you can really have a conversation with, I always tell grant writers or development officers, reach out to them, talk to them, hear, get, oftentimes they're very forthcoming and telling you what makes the board, um, you know, want to give to an organization, what makes them excited about giving, because oftentimes it's the board um, who are not technical experts. So right. if you're writing a certain type of grant, you know, learn about that board, learn about the executive director, or learn about what their mission is, and truly try to dig in there, and then write to the audience. I think that's really key in whenever you're writing um, grants, outside of government grants. I think that's really great information, especially for business owners, because a lot of them come and they ask like, well, what kind of grants are available? And for small businesses, a lot of it is going to be through foundations. A lot of it is going to be private entities that are doing grant competitions. So it, you're right. It's very different than writing a very technical grant for a government organization. You've really got to put more emotion, more feeling into it and really speak to the people who are going to be reviewing that grant application. So when we talk about grants and some successes, can you give us some one of the like big grants or one of the big fundraising moments that you were like, yes, I did it, I made it. What was one of those like big successful moments for you? Oh gosh, that's that's so hard. Um, I don't know if it was really the dollar amount. I would say it really is more about how how far those dollars spread. Um, I would probably draw on working in the local business community. Uh, I, I guess I find greater I would say one of our local banking institutions, mm -hmm. uh, in the short amount of time I've been here, we I've worked really hard to try to learn about what's important to their board, what's important to their business, where they want to grow their business, and how Texas Tech Health Science Center El Paso fits into that and how our missions align. More recently, they this banking institution called after I made um, an ask and had been working with them for almost the past year 
And they said that they would give 25000 to our scholarship initiative for our 10-year anniversary for our school wow. of medicine. And that was huge because mm-hmm. um, it's really not about the dollar amount. It's about they – I felt like they really – found value and aligned with our mission in a short amount of time. And I felt like, you know, our team put so much effort behind that because they started off with a smaller grant award to us. And we really showed the value and the impact in that short amount of time and what those dollars can do for our community. And that's what kind of really inspired them to go to this higher amount in such a short amount of time. So that would probably be when I I know people, especially fundraisers tend to like, oh, these multi-million dollar grants. (laughs) But I really feel like working with the business community. Mm -hmm. And that's why I love serving in the Hispanic Chamber, because it really is about how we can build partnership and show value to our community and have a greater impact in our community um, with what they're doing in the business community and what we're doing at the Health Science Center for Healthcare. I want to ask you, as somebody who is probably very in demand for your skill set because there's a large competition for for money, for fundraising, and there's always competition to find somebody who can write grants who can go after that. Why El Paso? Why Texas Tech Health Sciences Center? Like, what was it about El Paso and that organization that made you say, like, this is this is where I want to be? My husband and I actually made a concerted effort to really find the community we wanted to raise or eventually raise our family and build a life. And we were drawn to El Paso initially. Um, Now I say the Paso del Norte region because we work across Las Cruces Mm -hmm. and El Paso um, and to some extent Juarez. But when we finished at Texas Tech in Lubbock and we're both Red Raiders, so (laughs) I'll get to that and why I I decided to come back to Texas Tech. But we fell in love with El Paso. I was working at Texas Tech and trying to bring the nursing program when I was in Lubbock to El Paso. And it was the first time I had ever been. My husband was born and raised in Tucson. I was stationed four hours away. And we had never been to El Paso. And we were like, this is the best kept secret ever. It's a beautiful (laughs) place to raise your family. Um, The quality of life is amazing. And the people are so welcoming. Um, We the and a lot of the culture is very um, familial. Mm -hmm. And so that we loved because it's very similar to where we grew up. I grew up in California in a close-knit family, Hispanic family, and so did he in Tucson. And But we saw the opportunity to to serve the community both in the business world and then with our skill sets. And so I don't know. We just – it was something – it's like literally I said, you've got to come check out El Paso after I was, you know, doing some work here. And we took a weekend trip, and he started applying for clerkships with law firms. And it was just – we landed here, and, like, we felt at home here, and we knew that this is where we want it to be, and we've been here for almost 10 years now. Wow. I think it's always great to hear, like, stories because so many times it's that people – come back to El Paso, like maybe they grew up here or they were in the military, their family was in the military, so they maybe spent like a couple years here and then they come back. But it's always great to hear stories about people who didn't necessarily grow up here that come here and they feel perfectly at home. And then I guess that as a Red Raider, Texas Tech was just the natural <laughs> natural next step, right? Yeah, I, you know, having uh, – served in New Mexico for eight years. It was it was time for a change in the when the opportunity presented itself. Um, you know, I had to think a, a, I gave it a lot of thought because again, taking that risk and going outside of your comfort zone, I had 
you know, built this community and partnerships and had really been ingrained in New Mexico. And although I had contacts and still did some work in El Paso, I was very ingrained in New Mexico. And so it was a big leap for me. And but a big decision factor for us was, you know, Texas Tech had given us so much and so much of an opportunity um, with scholarships, with, uh, you know, the education we got there. And I had worked at the Health Science Center, and I love healthcare. I just healthcare drives our economy here in this region, and in a lot of um, you know cities or a lot of regions. And we have a very specific, tailored mission. And I feel like healthcare and education impacts every single person across this region. And I just saw the potential in you know serving my alma mater, where that had given me so much. So it was really a nice fit, and we love. Red Raider Athletics. I was like, this is <laughs> perfect. I could actually have some time to go and support uh-huh. our alma mater again. <laughs> and it's part of the job, right? Like yes. you have to go. <laughs> I have to. <laughs> you don't have to worry about working for an organization that you didn't go to. And then it's like, oh, my loyalty is split. Do I yes. cheer for them? Who do I cheer for? <laughs> Very you don't have true. To split the house, right? And what better year? We went to the men's basketball national championship. That's this right. Year, so yeah. that was exciting. <laughs> so it was a good year for Red Raiders. Um, I have friends who are Red Raiders, so I hear about Texas Tech athletics all the time, <laughs> all year round. Good. We love that. <laughs> so I want to kind of go back to your military experience and. In El Paso, we have a large military population, people who are getting ready to transition. So can you talk to us a little bit about your experience transitioning out of military life, going into school, and then going into the workforce? So one of the things that I, and I, again, I, you know, I went in in January of 2000, active duty. Um, so that'll give you an, a little bit of an idea of my age um, since I said I graduated from high school um, around that time. <laughs> but um, so granted, that was, you know, almost 20 years ago. Uh, so things may have changed. But I will say that when I was going through and even a lot of my f- family members or people who I knew served in the military and who were career military, I didn't feel like the emphasis on education was crucial white as prevalent as it should be, especially since while you're in the military, they pay for your school. And then when you get out, you have the GI Bill, Mm -hmm. as well as your dependents can take advantage of that. And so even my own relatives, younger relatives who have gone in since me, um, I wish that they would take more advantage of the education. We get an education, you know, with skill set and training on our jobs, but higher education, I'm a first generation college student, and I really believe that educate higher education is a game changer. Mm-hmm. And so I really felt like that was something um, that really helped with my transition because I had done, you know, pretty much the first two years of um, like my general education credits, the community college. So I kind of got a jump start when mm-hmm. I was able to get out and that helped me land my first job. Um, so I, you know, I have a different perspective of I really feel that education needs to be a priority for military people while you're in um, so that you can have a decent transition as you get out because so many of us, even if it's a two-year degree Mm -hmm. or um, a vocational training, I don't 
believe everybody has to get a four-year degree or go beyond that, but some skill set that's transferable so that you can, you know, transition to the civilian world and have a decent job and, and provide for yourself and or your family. Um, so that was probably um, one of the greatest gifts the military provided me, um, but I felt like I really, I, I had that game plan going in, and if, I I would love to see the military put a bigger emphasis on, on education, that, on education. Yeah. And transitioning mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's great advice for anybody who is, is getting ready to transition right now. And, and Texas has things like the Homestead Act and, and other policies that really hopefully will help drive more people towards that that education pathway and like you said it doesn't need to be a four-year degree it could be a vocational um, technical degree it could be some kind of certification something along those lines Um, I think that's that's great advice so let me transition a little bit as a woman in higher education especially in your position not a lot of women are necessarily in those roles coming from the Air Force not a lot of women in the Air Force either what are some of the challenges that you had faced being a woman kind of in in these male dominated worlds so I think about that probably on a daily basis um, because I'm raising two girls mm-hmm. um, with a very I feel like a very strong role model as a, uh, with my husband and so I'm very cognizant of that in the business world, especially, um, and trying to get more women involved in whether it be higher education or the business community. And it's, it's I would say, not without its challenges, probably almost on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that when I talk to classes and not just emails, what I always try to tailor my message is for females to really have confidence in their ability and themselves. I would say that for the greater part of my career, and even sometimes I fall back or regress in this Mm -hmm. mindset, I always doubt myself and question, am I good enough? Can I do this? Am Am I experienced enough? Am I skilled enough? And probably not, you know, popular with my male counterparts, but I will say I don't see males doing that, mm-hmm. even in my own home, you know. No, I, my I husband, agree. <laughs> but I don't see my husband questioning, like, oh, you know, am I experienced enough to step up mm-hmm. to this or not? They have that confidence. They, they just do. And I don't know if it's the way we're socialized or not, but um, I, I, I see that a lot, and especially young females, and I felt that way a lot in my early career. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I even still hear gender bias or hear something that people don't even realize or like gender bias, right? Like they'll say, oh my gosh, how do you manage kiddos and, you know, career? And I'm uh-huh. like, well, did you ask my husband that? Exactly. Did you ask, you know, my boss uh-huh. that who has children? children I mean, it, as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they tend to ask the, the, the mm-hmm. mom that or the wife that, and it is a juggling act and it is a balancing act. Um, and it's a challenge every day. And I, you know, it's funny because one of the things that I saw in your questions was, you know, who your role model is. And I started thinking about all these great women in our society who have mm-hmm. done amazing things. But then I thought, you know what? My greatest role model was my mom, who was a single working mom. Right. And then all the other moms out there who are like rushing, like I didn't have time to even like blow dry my hair today, right? <laughs> <laughs> like I barely have time to like dry my hair because I have two kiddos and I'm juggling. Right. And I see that more with moms, even when you have 
like a husband in the house. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, it's, I feel like moms tend to take on a lot more of that. And then when you're balancing life and career. So my, I just always want to instill, um, that confidence in other females, whether they're my age, older, younger, mm-hmm. I always feel like extending a compliment on how someone's doing, especially female counterparts is always, um, really important because you never know what kind of day they're having. You mm-hmm. never know, you know, you fought traffic to get in this morning and you're dealing with a sick kiddo and you're trying to juggle all these things. So that confidence though is, is really key. And I'm not saying you have to be like over the moon about yourself Mm -hmm. because I think you also have to have the courage to be a good follower, to build up your leadership skills. Um, And a lot of that is realizing your strengths and weaknesses and being humble um, humble enough to accept good mentors in your life, whether they be female or, or male. But I do think that having that confidence to say, well, I, yeah, maybe I can acquire these skills mm-hmm. and keep building up, but I should go after that promotion, right? right? Or I should go after that position and try it out. Um, cause I promise you the, the male standing next to you is not thinking mm-hmm. all of those thousand things of why you, they should, why they do shouldn't. It. Right. They're right? always <laughs> just focused on like, Oh yeah, I can do I'm it. I'm totally good for that. Job. I'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's so funny because I've, I think I've told the story on the podcast before, but when I was applying for jobs, I have a lot of male friends. And so we were all kind of applying for jobs at the same time. And I would look at a, at a position and I'd be like, you know what? I, I don't check all 10 things. You know, I don't have three years of experience. I've only got, you know, like a year doing internships. And they're like, yeah, I check like four out of 10, but eh, I'm going to go for it. I'll figure it out. Like, I'll just figure it out. And I was always like how I, I started to look at myself and say, I've got to have that same level of confidence to just say, I'll figure it out because in my daily life, I do, I figure things out, changing the light bulb on my car or, or whatever, you figure it out. But when it comes to my professional career, I tend to be like, hold on, let me make sure that I'm I'm overly qualified. And and I think it's so interesting that you pointed that out too, that men are just like, yeah, it's fine, I'll figure it out. I'm good. <laughs> it is interesting. And, and I would say I've encountered that a number of times throughout every single week. And also even, you know, one of the things that I find interesting is that we tend to not take credit for our work. Mm-hmm. You know, where if you listen to language that like female leaders or like businesswomen have, you know, they'll say my team and we did this and it's very much we where I, and I've worked with brilliant male leaders who I consider friends and mentors today. But when I, I used to always kind of listen to what they and oftentimes they would say we my team and they would and I had great mentors men who would acknowledge me and Mm -hmm. that was great but at the end of the day it was like they were like still they were kind of the the ones that were like yeah I did that (laughs) (laughs) and but I learned from them that they they built good teams around them Mm -hmm. and oftentimes some of the best um male mentor business people that I've come across have almost a full team of women (laughs) 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 or a nonprofit board they've served on I have you know one of the chairs and I, I he didn't even realize himself that he had literally built a, 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 a group, this inaugural ambassador group mm-hmm. of all women. And he didn't even realize it. And I was like, hmm, I think there's a reason for that. Yeah, there's a reason. There's a reason. You know, they say like behind every man is a successful woman. Well, it's actually a team of successful yes. women. Yes. So 
One of the things that we do with these little one-on-ones, and you kind of mentioned it, is the questions that we ask. So it's very much like a lightning round question. Um, So it's very in the spirit of behind the actor's studio, uh, just to get to know you a little bit better and to... You know, one of the things that I like to do is I like to put together a playlist of songs when I'm getting ready to do any kind of public speaking to kind of get myself jazzed up. So I'm always looking for something to add to that. So this does have a selfish purpose to it. (laughs) (laughs) But I always like to to kind of have some fun with this. So first one, we kind of talked a little bit about who do you consider a role model? So your mom, a single mom raising you. Um, is there anything that she said or is there anything that you've heard, some kind of quote or saying that inspires you? Oh, my gosh, a quote. Um, ooh, I'm so bad with quoting other people. I always get it wrong, so I don't even try. I would say not a quote, but something that I live by. Um, again, not to make it a gender thing, but my mom always made sure to tell me if, you know, she would say, oh, you look beautiful today. She would always say, and I'm so proud of how smart and intelligent hard worker you are. So with my own two girls, um, since they were babies, I, if I compliment them on how they look, I always give them a compliment on their work ethic or um, how smart they are. So my oldest daughter, I'll always, like in the morning, I'll say, oh, you know, you're so beautiful and I'm so proud of you because you're so smart or something like that. Oh, I love um, that. So that's kind of my motto with, with young girls. And even when I compliment kid, like my friend's kiddos, especially girls, I'm always like, oh, you look, you're so pretty and so smart. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I think we don't like take that into consideration. You know, you're like, oh, it's a compliment. But it is important to reinforce that it's not just about appearance. It's also about what you bring to the table in terms of your intelligence and your experience and your knowledge. I love that. So what is your daily routine like? Oh my gosh. Um, This also cracks me up because I love to hear what um, working moms talk about their daily routine. And I wish we would share this on social media more as Uh opposed to just like the smiley pictures, because some days I'm like, are we, am I like, is this serious? (laughs) Am I really doing this? So I, my daily routine is usually, um, I wake up very early and work out because I feel that's really important, um, to keep me sane and healthy. And, um, so I'll get up probably about six o'clock, six 30, work out for about 45 minutes. I come back inside. By then, my girls are usually awake. Mm-hmm. Um, I always try, if I'm not traveling, I always want to greet them and wake up in the morning. Um, I check emails and respond. try to respond to emails and get like my day started, so I kind of clear that out, so do a little bit of work in the morning. I often um, I do a lot of cards to donors or thank you cards mm-hmm. or birthday cards, whatever, and so correspondence. Um, reviewing grants, reviewing press releases. Um, so I do a lot of that in the morning. So that way when I walk into the office, I'm just ready to go and focus on the team and um, deal with the, whatever the fire Crisis of the day. Is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, any, and, and then just really making sure, like for the day, I try to prioritize in my head, like, okay, these are the things that I need to get done t- today. Or I try to balance my day of it's really easy to get caught behind your computer and just sitting there and like cranking things out administratively. But in my role, I really feel like, you know, you have to balance your day of being out in the community, making sure that um, you're reaching out to to the community and to people. So I try to balance my day like that. Um, And then I'm usually the last one. I may not be the first one to get to work every day, but I'm always usually the last one to leave. 
Um, and so the day is just hectic. And I love that about my career because it's just very different every day, something different every day, different types of meetings. Um, and then I race home, and um, I, it's a priority for us to always have dinner together. So we, have, we do that. Um, and I love just vegging out and like doing Netflix with my with like my family yeah. at night. Um, but I will say that like the mornings are it's always funny to me because all like my girls will be in like the mix of everything getting ready. And so the other day I laughed because I was like hopping on one leg trying to get ready and like throw on like my heel. And then I was like, oh, we're going out of town. So after I get home, I've got to pack the girls. So I, I was like cutting my little baby's like nails while I was like hopping on one foot <laughs> getting my shoe on. And I was like, what? This is so crazy. <laughs> so it's always like a thousand other things right. that I'm working on um, that I think we, we just kind of all take on. But those are the little things and then sometimes I rushed my my oldest plays softball so mm -hmm. oftentimes rushing to get to softball to make sure I'm there by the by the time she goes up to hit um getting snacks and things like mm -hmm. that so it's like all the mom duties with like all the work stuff all the work stuff <laughs> yeah so final question what is your favorite song when you need to get pumped up when you need when you've got like maybe a big presentation for a big donor and you're like I gotta I gotta kill this I gotta do it <laughs> well I have two songs one is the PC version that I can play if I have um, kiddos in the car and that's um, Girl on Fire by Alicia Keys okay. and then my non-PC when my kids aren't in the car, car is by Drake start it from the bottom now we're here <laughs> <laughs> which is like probably my favorite to be honest um, Crystal Martinez was on our last podcast, and that was her song, too. We talked about that. I know yes. we talked about that. And I was like, hey, we both have the same song. Yeah. Well, just to close out, I just want – we kind of got what your words of wisdom are for your girls because you tell them, you know, you're beautiful and you're smart. But what would you tell to girls who are getting ready to – graduate from school who are getting ready to enter the workforce and what words of wisdom would you give them in terms of really going after their dreams and, and getting to the level that you are at now? I would say don't uh, close any doors um, and take chances. I am not good at that, so it's definitely out of my comfort zone. So I give that advice because I wish I could take my own advice. <laughs> um, I always sort of had this this definitive plan and tried to like fit my life in that. And when challenge adversity came up, I was like devastated and really carried a lot of um, sort of like doubt, doubting myself. And I had to deal with that over probably this last year about this time professionally. Um, there was a, a lot of challenge in that way for me. And it was the first time I, I really kind of had to, to deal with that. And so I would say if you practice that like throughout your career of like taking risk and um, sort of embracing a lot of that adversity mm -hmm. and, and not being afraid to go outside of your, your comfort zone and not shutting any doors that are open to you, um, I think it'll prepare you for that when that time comes when you really are having like a major experience that really you can't figure out how to get through, whether it's professionally or personally. Um, 
And so those are probably, and, and it's hard. It's hard to get out of your comfort mm-hmm. zone. It's hard to take that risk, especially when you know something and you, you, you're in that groove. Um, but at the end of the day, it takes a, it takes a while. It take, took me a year to realize it was the best plan for me, and, and I'm so much happier and better for it, and I learned so much from that. Um, and I wish I would have embraced that at a very earlier age in my mm-hmm. career and life. Well, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. This was such a great conversation. And I know we kind of covered a lot of different topics from grants to military transition to your favorite song. (laughs) But I really do appreciate it. And I love doing these kinds of episodes because I think women who are listening just get so much out of hearing the experiences that you've been through, whether... um, they're just starting out in their career or they're getting ready to retire and close out their career. I think that there's always something that we can learn from each other. And so I really enjoy doing these episodes and I'm really grateful for you for coming in. So thank you for coming in for us. Thanks. You're the best interviewer ever. It's so easy and conversational. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are going, we are going to go ahead and sign off right now from the sun carpets podcast studio at the global MWEDC center. This has been Sharon your sweat equity a business podcast and we will see you all next time